Working for Crusoe. Friday, April 14th, 2023. Sam Park, John Ramey. Sam, it's a jam-packed show. Wall-to-wall stories that we want to talk about. And they are inflation data. Two stories regarding uh, President Macron of France. Two updates on previous Macron stories that we've covered. Okay. Uh, Joe Biden in Ireland. And uh, intelligence leaks from the United States military um, that are, I don't know if catastrophic is the right word, but significant. I'll say they're disturbing. Disturbing. At a minimum. Yeah. Uh, Let us begin with... Uh, inflation data. Um, this morning, the New York Times, Ben Castleman says, uh, recent data suggests the economy is strong. The job market is better than it was in February 2020. And inflation is showing signs of dissipating. So it's all good, say, right? I would say that's right. Yeah. Uh, inflation is falling a little bit faster than it has been. Uh, I should I should mention that the inflation data this week that we got this week is uh, the March inflation data. So uh, it's already a, almost a couple a, a couple weeks uh, uh, out of date. But uh, one of the the interesting things I noticed, and this hasn't been true in recent months, is that core inflation is actually just a tiny bit higher than what's called headline inflation. Headline inflation is the, the the very broad measure of inflation across the entire economy. Poor inflation strips out things like energy costs and food prices, uh, because these those two things in particular are esteemed to be more volatile. So they don't if you include them, they don't provide the best picture of the broader economy. Like price of bread, price of gas, that moves around too much to give, um, or I guess that's too, as you say, volatile to give a, a clear picture. Yeah, well, they, they, and you're right also, it does move around too much. For instance, this inflation data does not include the period in which the Saudis, or that is OPEC plus, decided to cut oil production, right? That had an immediate and dramatic effect on the price of oil and gas prices have been rising ever since, right? Because of one decision made by a very small group of people, as opposed to an enormous group of participants in the broader economy. Uh, and for, and, and you might ask, well, if energy prices are high, won't that feed through into the costs of everything else? I might ask that. Right. And the, the answer is yes, but, once that happens, that means it, it shows up in the core inflation data, right? In other words, if if the rise in the cost of energy was not large enough or sustained enough uh, to feed through into the core data, then it wouldn't actually be making that big a difference in inflation. The government data released this week showed that consumer prices were up 5% in March, again, from the New York Times, uh, compared to a year ago. And that is the slowest pace in nearly two years. Yes. So I'll go back to our uh, water coming into a boat metaphor. Um, Inflation is the rate or the rate of inflation is the rate of water coming into our boat. We want to slow the, the rate of the water coming into the boat. 
but ideally we, we'd like we to, get to stop water right. from the boat. Right, right. But first things first, we'd like to slow it. Yes. We'd like to make the leak less catastrophic. Yeah, that seems to be happening. And then, of course, the the rest of the media this week um, was just kind of um, various egg brains talking about will there be a recession, which from a journalism standpoint, I understand because rank and file people who are not economists are, um, I believe, I believe thought to be appropriately scared by the concept of recession. And of course, journalists are trying to deliver news that people want to read. So those were the... We got additional data this week on top of the inflation figures, including uh, weekly jobless claims actually rose uh, by only 11,000, which, you know, seems like it would be a margin of error figure to me, frankly. Uh, But uh, if the Fed's interest rate policies actually are working, that would seem to be an indicator, right, Uh, that actually more people uh, are uh, losing jobs, right? Uh, Not a lot. Right. The, and, and but the the main uh, fear of recession, I think, stems from the release of the minutes of the Fed's last meeting uh, in which they seem to agree. There seems to be a consensus amongst uh, the Fed's board of governors or the I'm sorry, the oh, the open market committee uh, that they expected a recession to a mild recession later this year. Uh, and I'm like. It's April. I mean, I, I, I would, you know, we only have seven more months or eight more months. Uh, so, uh, you know, what if you hear people from the Fed saying, yeah, I think we're going to have a recession, then, you know, it's kind of reasonable to, to, to think that that might happen. But again, it's um, like we talked about last week. It's such a behavioral deal. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, yeah. and But the other thing about it is that, and look, nobody wants a recession. OK, uh, but uh, recessions end. Right. And if it's a mild recession, we might hope it'll end rather soon. And as we were discussing last week, once inflationary expectations become entrenched in an economy, it's very hard to get rid of them. They can go on for a very long. I mean, like I said, this is the like you said, the this is the lowest inflation figure that we've had in two years. Right. Two years. That's not a short time. Uh, and so. I understand that that people sort of get upset with the Fed for essentially engineering a recession, right? Uh, But what Chairman Powell has said, look, inflation hurts everybody on an ongoing basis for a very long time. Uh, And so, yeah, we we don't want a recession, but it's it's the lesser evil, right? When you think about what the Fed's job is, it's kind of like being an umpire, right? You've got to love the game enough so that everybody kind of hates you, even when you're doing your job well. I suppose. Sorry, there's a sports one for you, Sam. Didn't even even think about it. Umpires don't uh, provide the field. Right. right. They, they don't they, they don't are, provide the balls. They don't limit the well, number they do of strikes. Provide the balls, actually. I mean, well, but, I, yeah, somebody but somebody gives it to him from the dugout. OK, fine. But they don't determine the dimensions of the field. True. Right. Uh, you know, John, the economy is very much like <laughs> almost everything else in the world in that it's not a sport. <laughs> <laughs> I did it without thinking. 
you don't say. Yeah. Shall we move to Macron? Sure. Okay, before we get going on this, so we're going to talk about, well, he made comments about Taiwan and the United States and escalations with China regarding Taiwan. And then he's also got his controversial um, pension reform going on uh, domestically in France. But before we get into this, I just I want to make sure I have this right. Is Macron the most consequential French executive in quite some time? I feel like yeah, he is I, yes, he's his relationship with Putin. I just feel yeah. like he has kind of thrust himself in part because the UK hasn't really had a lot of stability and and Merkel's gone, right? But he is the senior most leader in the U- European Union of a, at least of a major country. And he seems to really be kind of I don't think he's hogging the spotlight, but I, I do think he's kind of been on the world stage quite a bit. That's right. And I, I mean, the, I think more he, than he, I expect from French presidents, maybe since Mitterrand, his seniority is something that he seems to relish, let's say. I mean, I'm right. not that's not a complaint because I don't know. I don't have enough uh, expertise in French politics to critique it. Um, But it's interesting. It's caught my attention. Well, OK, he, not only is he the most senior EU leader, right, that is leader of an EU nation. Uh, he is also the first French president of the last three to be ele- be reelected. Uh, and that's, I think, the, the as an equally important element here. Uh, Francois Hollande only served one term. Sarkozy, uh, Sarkozy only served one term. Uh, and so the last French, the multi-term French president was Jacques Chirac, who was actually a very okay. consequ- consequential French president. And he's a, a contemporary of um, Clinton, right? Clinton and, uh, yes. and Blair. Right. Even uh, I would say, yeah, that's right. I would, in the nineties mm-hmm. is when he first came to prominence, uh, and so I think that the other thing that Macron is a singular figure in recent French politics because he essentially blew up the previous two party system, right? Uh, and that I think I remember saying to you at the time that's very dangerous. I thought it was very dangerous, right? Because if he failed. Uh, then the previous two-party system in France would be gone. And the only real alternative would be the far right. And in fact, that is true, right? His main opponent in the presidential election last year was Marine Le Pen of the National Rally Party. Uh, Previously, the furthest right party in France, although they've now been surpassed in that regard. But to return to the topics at hand, because I don't want to spend a lot of time with this. We've talked about France a lot in recent months. First of all, as we discussed last week on their visit to China, Macron in the company of European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, made a certain number of remarks about, you know, France's position vis-a-vis China. But he was he was after we did our show last week, he returned to France. He gave a couple of interviews one to the European arm of Politico and another to a French newspaper called Les Echos, or The Echos, right? And and he expanded upon and elaborated upon these remarks. Uh, in, now, I don't want to go into great detail about what he said, but he used words like vassal. Yeah, uh, ally, but, not vassal. Yes. Regarding uh, France and the United States. Exactly. Uh, and, and then, you know, now, mind you, these are not especially... 
That is this sort of posture is not an unusual one for a French president exactly. to take. But He's got to say that, right? It, yeah, it just sort of seemed ill-timed. Uh, and another interesting thing that I found out about his relationship with Francis, you'll recall we discussed that he went to China with uh, dozens of French business executives, which is not at all unusual. These things, the sort of things happen. Uh, and one of whom was the head of, or at least the representative of Airbus, who dangled the idea of opening a factory in France. Uh, after in China. The, yeah, I'm sorry, in China. Yeah, of course. They, I'm confident they already have a factory in France. Right. Yeah. Uh, and after the trip was over, or at least when it was winding down, the Chinese issued a statement saying, yeah, we're going to have to think about that. Uh, and I just thought that was possibly the, actually the most interesting element of this story, right? Because it seemed to me that what the Chinese were saying is, yeah, you can't just dangle planes in front of us. Uh, sure, if you open a, a factory in our country, that'll make it easier for us to steal your a aviation technology. But we probably don't need the factory to do that. It'll take a little longer, right? Because let's stipulate: everybody knows that 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 the Chinese steal technology from Western companies that open facilities in China. Right. right? This happens all the time. It's just that the companies figure we can still out innovate our Chinese competitors uh, on our end and still win the race, and it's worth losing our technology uh, in order to gain access to the Chinese market. This is essentially the calculation that they make. Uh, and I just, I, I found it very, just fascinating that the Chinese would say, yeah, you know. We uh, don't need your Airbus design. Well, okay, they didn't say they weren't going to do it. Right. Right. Uh, they said, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, maybe we'll do it. They, they, they didn't jump at it, is the point I'd like to make. So, for instance, today, or yesterday, I guess, uh, uh, or both today and yesterday, that is, uh, the German foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, is in Beijing, uh, and she's sort of, you know, trying to walk back uh, some of the, the, the damage caused of the transatlantic alliance by Macron. Uh, mind you, though... Uh, wait, 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 say that again. She's trying to... Walk she's back trying, some of the to mitigate some of the the damage done to the 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 European Europe, United, United States, States alliance by uh, Macron seeming to be neutral in regards to China. So she's in China talking about how great the U.S. is. Why would she do that? No, I mean, I understand no, no, she's there talking about what the European position is in regards okay. to China. And uh, specifically Taiwan, I assume. Yeah, but mind you, that is not an identical position. Well, exactly, because Europe... The U.S. position. I mean, the autonomy of Taiwan has been a U.S. Well, first of all, it's the Pacific, right? So it's by definition much more a United States concern than European. Exactly. And second of all, like, we're kind of the guarantors of, you know, free countries in that zone as yeah, opposed and we shouldn't expect europe to carry right. that ball like right? it was britain that got into world war ii when germany invaded poland not us right. i mean exactly. i know it's a different era but it's the, yeah but that is i think that is roughly analogous 
Right. right? But the other thing is that, you know, uh, we've spoken over the years about the, the uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. And the fact is the Belt and the Road are supposed to lead to Europe, right? That is actually the main destination of the Belt and the Road. And Europe is trying to figure out whether they actually, you know, how much they can participate in this. Uh, and I don't think they've come to a good answer about this yet. For example, uh, one of the only countries in the EU to have official relations with Taiwan, I think they are the only country, in fact, is Lithuania, right? Is this tiny postage stamp country who isn't going to ex export anything to China or import much from them. So just uh, to clarify, everybody but Lithuania, or most everybody but Lithuania in the EU does not have the same two China policy that the United States does with mainland China they and have Taiwan. have one China policy. Or excuse me, one China policy. They have different one yeah. China policies, right? Uh, everybody has a one China policy. That's the whole point of the one China policy is that it's actually many policies, right? It's a it's clever China, title. Many policies, right? Uh, e pluribus unum, we might say. Uh, <laughs> and so... Uh, Europe might need to make some decisions about this going forward. They don't have to make them now. Uh, but, for instance, uh, Annalena Baerbock was much more aggressive, I would say, about asking China to, to pressure Russia to end the war in Ukraine uh, than Macron was, certainly. Uh, and so that's good. Uh, but this sort of question of Taiwan, I think, because it's not unrelated. For instance, some of the, to get back to what I was saying about Lithuania, many of the formerly communist countries that are now members of the European Union are sort of upset about the growing relationship between Europe and China. For instance, the the trade deficit between Europe and China is growing every year. Uh, and, and they worry that, and as do, as do the United States for that matter, that uh, Europe is making the same mistake with China that they did with Russia. And it's easy to see why they might be concerned about that. And so uh, there could be not just differences between the United States and Europe about Europe's relationship with China, but differences inside the European Union as well. This is all great for Xi and Putin and everybody else on in that loose block if the European Union is having to think about how they will feel about hypothetical aggression against Taiwan in relationship, in relationship to how the United States will react against hypothetical aggression against Taiwan. And then at the same time, the United States is uh, very supportive of keeping Russia out of Ukraine, right? It's like if the United States is going to help keep European uh, borders sovereign and intact, then, hey, EU, you got to have our back when we're taking care, or at least not be neutral when we're taking care of a uh, free Taiwan, right? I mean, they love that, that the West is having to talk about this. 
I guess. Um, or is it, it not weakness? Is it just this is not a point of weakness? This is just it's an just inevitable this, clarification. It cuts both ways, right? I mean, uh, China very much wants to keep trading with Europe, right? If if they are suddenly subject to a lot of sanctions from Europe, that's not good for them. Uh, and so there, Europe is not the only one that needs to make decisions. It's just that their decision-making process is one that we all get to see uh, much more clearly than right. we see than we do the one in China. Uh, now, we don't know how this is all going to play out, uh, but it's something that we're going to need to keep an eye on. But the other issue with France that we've discussed is the raising of the retirement age, which mm -hmm. literally an hour or so ago, the Constitutional Council said that they would sign off on that. They're not signing off on the entire package of pension reforms, but the crucial issue of the retirement age is good to go. Uh, now, the protests are ongoing. Uh, one of the aspects that I hadn't heard about, but that they were the council rejected uh, was the idea that that there should be a sort of government advisory body to that would urge companies to hire people over the age of 55. Right. Uh, uh, the council said, yeah, that's not really, you know, you can't really legislate that sort of thing, you know, or uh, make that a, a law. Right. Uh, and I hadn't, you know, that, but to me, that's a crucial issue. Who wants to hire old people? Right. Uh, right. And uh, so Macron is scheduled to meet with the members of the union, uh, uh, the, the labor unions, that is next week, next Tuesday. Tuesday. So we'll see how that works out. I find it interesting that all of these things are happening at the same time. I wonder if he, if he felt he, that making controversial remarks abroad, uh, you know, might take some of the pressure off of it and help him at home. If what's so, what's French for tail wagging the dog? Yeah, but I think that's actually that would I be know. a foolish consideration. So I actually doubt it's true. Yeah. You, know, if, if, you know, I don't. Uh, it's fun to think about, though. It is. But and it's fun to think about anything in French. Yeah, but he's, you know, I don't think he's stupid. But I could be right. wrong. Um, Just zooming back out, I know. You wanted to talk about these things in particular, but when you talked about Macron blowing up the two-party system and, and now his very consequential tenure as French president, France has to be historically the most politically volatile of the great powers, right, or semi-great powers. Oh, I wouldn't say that. I mean, uh, it, right now they're all volatile. We yeah, are but, I, but France is on their fifth republic or whatever. Oh, well. I'm talking historically. They seem to be like, burn it down and build it back up more often outside of wars than the, like then more than the UK, okay. more than the U S uh, more than Germany. Broad sweep. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I'll give you that. Uh, yeah. And I, th I, I don't know what the, the, the reason for that might be, uh, but neither yeah, do I, uh, but you know, I mean, they've been invaded. They've, you know, uh, they've been a colonial power. Uh, they are a continental power as opposed to Britain, which is an Island power. Right. Uh, I, you know, there, there could be any number of reasons for this. You know, just that uh, you never know how the historical confluence is actually going to conflue or whatever, you know. Whatever. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, Biden and Ireland. Okay. 
Uh, uh, sorry, do you have anything more on the French? No, I, I, okay. I, I like to stop talking about the French as quickly as possible. Um, Biden going to Ireland. It has been criticized by Mike Pence as a family vacation. That is silly. Former Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, it's silly because there are still a considerable number of American voters with Irish heritage, right? That alone yes. justifies the trip. Well, not just that. It was the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, that's this is not a small thing. Uh, this Good Friday very, Agreement being? Th- this is the agreement between the UK and, uh, I'm sorry, between the participants inside of Northern Ireland uh, to end, or not end, but dramatically reduce the level of violence. It, it, it resulted in the formation of the devolved government inside Northern Ireland, uh, in which uh, all the parties would participate and and assume more responsibility for the affairs inside of Northern Ireland, uh, which was previously governed from London, essentially. So it's, uh, the, it's the end of the troubles, more or less. Yeah, not quite yeah. the end, but almost the end. By the way, I mean, that, and Sinn Fein, Sinn Fein has stopped being like a terrorist organization and is now as a participating party in the system, right? That's the official story, yeah, and I think, in, for the most part, that's true. Some people would say that's not true. I, I don't uh, venture an opinion as to whether it's true or not. But the point is, the 25th anniversary of this thing is incredible because let's look at anywhere in the world with disputed territories and differing religions. Successes like this do not grow on trees. Exactly. And so uh, you know, the idea that that Biden shouldn't have gone, it's absurd. It's frankly absurd. Well, it was Mike Pence. Yes, exactly. Uh, that's an excellent point. Uh, <laughs> but uh, just for, now, I can understand, however, I mean, does Biden need to spend two additional days in the Republic of Ireland? No, he doesn't. Right. It's just that that's that's what he wanted to do. That. In, in in that segment of the trip, I can kind of see Pence's point, I'm sorry to say. Well, uh, listen, we all know that Biden's a big JFK guy, and I think he's the first U.S. president since Kennedy to visit the Republic of Ireland. Is that right? I believe that's correct. Yeah. I'm not certain. About I think I read that. Uh, but it's not. But that's another reason why for a U.S. president to go. Right. Like it's it's not like they're always there. Sure. And uh, I mean, yeah, is it that big a deal? Uh, well, there are a lot of people. That, I mean, again, it, there are a lot of voters with uh, Irish ancestry in this country. Yes, I, I, think I kind of figured, though, that uh, he didn't need to spend quite so much time in, in the Republic Party. That's all. Uh, I don't think it's a big deal at all. Uh, sure. But it's. Uh, uh, I've so, never been to Ireland, so I can't comment on that. Maybe yeah, it's I've great. Never, I've never been either. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here. It's a lovely place. Yeah. Uh, but you know, <laughs> to celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement is, I would say, a necessary thing to do, uh, especially right now because uh, the the Northern Irish are very upset with the results of the Brexit referendum seven years ago, uh, and that's an ongoing issue. If I can just interject here, uh, my significant other is British. Right. And she has attempted to explain to me the conflicting treaties and Brexit regarding the Northern Ireland, which is the UK and Irish border, which is the EU. And, uh, 
It's very like, complicated. It's like, I, I don't understand it, but it's a mess. But the, And that's why, especially the, the uh, unionist party, that is pro-UK party in Northern Ireland, is so upset is because the, the bulk of the Northern Irish population voted against Brexit. And uh, frankly, Northern Ireland got screwed by Brexit. And uh, the... Thanks, England. Yeah, the, the pretty conservative... Democratic Unionist Party uh, feels that the Conservative Party in the UK, writ large, basically hung them out to dry. They're right. I mean, <laughs> you know, but as a result, they're refusing to sit in the Parliament of the devolved government at Stormont. Uh, and so, and this is why Biden had to appear in Northern Ireland at uh, Ulster University in Belfast because. He couldn't go to, to Parliament because it didn't exist. Uh, and so that, you know, and he quietly or gently, that is, urged them to, you know, maybe you want to go back to work. Right. Uh, and but at the same time, you can't really uh, be all that. I, I can understand why the DUP is upset. They have they got hosed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, I and I am not someone who is generally very much disposed towards taking the side of the DUP. I can tell you that right now. That is the, the Democratic Unionist Party, what they stand for, if I didn't say that already. Right. Those are the people in Northern Ireland who are pro being part of the UK. Yes, they are the Unionist Party as opposed right. to the... These are confusing terms, right? Uh, they are pro the Union with the UK. The United the Kingdom. Nationalist Party is... Pro being a part of the nation of Ireland, right? Uh, I find it interesting, though, that these are the preferred terms that we use, right? There, I mean, there are Catholic unionists and there are Protestant nationalists, but there are very few, right? But we don't actually refer to these people anymore as Protestants and Catholics, even though that's essentially what they are. This is a sort of diplomatic linguistic technique to turn this into a political dispute and a political process and not a holy war yeah exactly and i I think that's that's one of the reasons that these are the terms that people are careful to use right unionist and nationalist as opposed to protestant and catholic shall we talk leaks sure uh, I'm glad, actually, that they found the guy, right? Uh, he's been arrested, or allegedly, right, the, the chief. Jack Teixeira, a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air Force National Guard employee. Air National Guardman. Yeah. Air National Guard, excuse me. Um, highly sensitive Pentagon documents online. Our uh, friend of the program, Tom Nichols, I say that tongue-in-cheek. You and I have differing levels of appreciation for uh, national security expert, retired uh, Tom Nichols, who's now as a, a national security expert, I, I think very highly. of Right. Um, he has an article in The Atlantic from today. And basically, he says uh, this is the latest in a, in a line of leakers who are consumed by narcissism, ego and just loserishness. And he ties in Chelsea Manning and he ties in Snowden and 
I encourage people to read it, whether they agree with it or not. I don't know. I don't think you've seen it, Sam. No, I have not. Um, but basically, he said this guy's a nerd, and he did it for clout on his, you know, forum online or whatever. And that's a bit terrifying if you think, you know, sensitive documents about the war in Ukraine can be leaked like this. Yes. And now I'm confident that Mr. Nichols knows more about this sort of thing than I do. And he goes I'm into not... depth about, you know, security clearances, which he has or has oh, had. Yeah. Uh, but the, the the in terms of the, the profile of the leaker, I'm not convinced that that's a comparatively recent phenomenon. I, this is certainly, you know, like you say, you can go back through Chelsea Manning and Snowden and people like this. I think that that these sort of motivations are might be more common than than they're made out to be. But I, I haven't read the article, so I shouldn't actually. That's OK. Well, Nichols just said the common thread is narcissism. And, yeah, he said, and that and that is broader than, than age. He goes, this one might be the dorkiest one, though. Yeah. And but I'm just glad that they caught the fella because talking about this sort of thing quickly leads you into a sort of hall of mirrors territory in which everything is distorted, reversed, and multiplied by a factor of its actual quantity. And so, mind you, you are actually looking at something that does exist that's being distorted and reversed and multiplied, but there is something there. And the only way you can get a handle on the true nature of that entity is to remove it from the hall. Uh, and so. All right. So what did he leak? He, he basically leaked documents that were. All sorts of things, apparently. Yeah. But but secret information specifically about like national security stuff and, and the Ukrainian army's ability to fight things we don't want public. That's right. Uh, I mean, the, you know, one or two things were. Well, OK. In the big picture. What Biden said yesterday, I think, very somewhat clumsily, but I think is generally right. He said, I'm concerned that it happened. I'm not so much concerned with the content of what was leaked. And I, as far as I, I've heard a number of retired military people say essentially the same thing, right? In other words, yes, uh, it revealed the location of a number of Ukrainian air defense installations. Uh it's not plausible that Russia didn't know where these things were, right? I mean, they, they, this is not something that, that has been revealed to the Russians, right? Uh, it's just that we would prefer not it, it not be out in public, right? Everybody knows I wear underwear, right? Uh, but I, that, I'm not going to, you know, wave it around. Post pictures and, of it on the internet. Yeah, right? I mean, uh, uh, and so uh, we shouldn't make too big a deal out of it. There's a question that I haven't heard anybody ask here yet, though. Right. Uh, for instance, I have heard many people say, why was someone like this given security clearance to have access to these documents? And that, that's an important question. I want that answered. But while we're answering that question, there's a sort of corollary question is who gave him the clearance? And the reason I ask that is because it's believed that this fella, Teixeira, had some degree of right-wing political leanings, right? We're going to have to figure out more. About, but, for instance, uh, Congresswoman Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene has already come out saying this guy's a hero or whatever, right? right. I mean, she didn't use the word He's a here, victim. Right. Uh, but uh, I'm reminded of the story of Michael Flynn, who was Donald Trump's first 
national security advisor until he was uh, had to be fired for, I think, lying to the FBI. But later turned out to be just an insane right. Barking at the moon insane. Yeah, even, yeah. even worse than we thought he was. He, you know, was urging Trump to confiscate, have the military confiscate voting machines in the weeks leading up to January 6th. After that, he made a speech in which he said that America should have a national religion. Now, I don't think General Flynn is what representative in these views of the officer corps of uh, the United States military. No, but he's probably not the only one. Yeah, he couldn't be. Right. Just because there's so many people in that body of uh, of of experts. Right. Uh, He's probably an outlier. But how far out does he lie? And could it be that Araman Teixeira was uh, promoted to security clearance by a higher up who shared these sorts of sympathies? I'm not saying that happened. I have no evidence whatsoever that it did. But we need to be careful. It's not the case. It and we, yeah, we need to find out certainly if it is because it it doesn't seem to be remotely implausible that it could have worked out that way. That's all. And again, this is a converse. This is a question that I haven't heard anybody else ask so far. Maybe somebody has, right? Uh, but in not in my review of the public media coverage of this. 